afternoon. Welcome to the panel on RNZ National. Nwanthi Samara Kona and Mark Sainsbury today. Now the congestion from the crash before the Waterview Tunnel. That has cleared. All lanes are open. We'll keep in touch with you about what's happening uh, traffic-wise uh, around the Mortu. Um, we are just waiting on our uh, first guest regarding uh, the announcement uh, by, well, the uh, stand-up by Prime Minister Chris Hipkins, excuse me, uh, today. Uh, but a bit of response regarding loneliness. Donna Intero says, I am 77 years old and I'm totally alone. No family, one friend, an hour's drive away. I've been like this for 12 years. People know my situation but never talk with me about it and... I think I've had enough. We will come back to this uh, topic, um, but needless to say, Mark, loneliness is quite an epidemic amongst some, isn't it? It's pervasive, and and you just don't really... Because people just look like, as I said, this conversation I had last night, people, they look perfectly okay until you start talking to them. You just realise how tortured they are. Just to have no one to be able, you know, that you can really talk to, it's just, yeah. oh, it just oh, I just can't deal with it. Yeah. So we will talk about loneliness on the panel. And gosh, uh, there has been quite a bit of response regarding uh, the effects or side effects when you take tramadol. So just some consumer advice on that, the need to know. We talk about that uh, before the half hour. But to this, in a pre-budget speech today, Prime Minister Chris Hipkins has ruled out an additional levy to pay for the recovery from Cyclone Gabrielle and the Auckland floods, and says the upcoming budget will be no frills. He's also ruled out a capital gains or wealth tax from the 18th May budget, but this leaves open the option for Labour to campaign on such a move at this year's election, some say. The speech also follows the release a day prior of a tax report by Inland Revenue and Treasury, which found the country's wealthiest were paying tax at a lower rate of their total income than most New Zealanders. So the wealthiest Kiwis pay about 10% of tax, 10% tax once all income and GST is included. For the average Kiwi, the figure is about 20%. With us is Cameron Bagri from Bagri Economics. Kia ora, Cameron. Uh, good afternoon. So this pre-budget speech today, I mean, any surprises here for you, Cameron? No, I don't think so. Look, back to basics, no frills. You can have a whole lot of catchphrases, but I guess the catchphrase I've got that's running through my head, it's going to be a big juggling act because they don't want to increase taxes, obviously, in an election year. You've got cost of living spending pressures. You've got what public say public pay service increases. You've got infrastructure deficits. You've got cyclone damage that needs repaired. It is going to be a real big juggling act to see where they go and see how the fiscal numbers pop out at the end. It looks like they're trying to strike as reasonably as balanced path, but they don't swing too much in one direction as possible. You've got sectors that are breaking at the seams, uh, don't you? And as much discussed on RNZ, including the panel, and you've got the infrastructure spend too, Cameron. I mean, went from $5 billion in 2017 to $12 billion a year, 2023 to 2027. So as an economist, I guess you'll be looking at uh, where that money comes from. Yeah, and I guess it's, it's three logical avenues. Look, one, either taxes go up. Three, you sacrifice some operational spend for what's called capital spend. So that's really about investing in the long game versus the, the short game. And, and the third 
thing is you, you borrow a bit more. Uh, each of those has pros and cons, but that becomes not just about a decision about economics, it becomes very political because people don't want to pay higher taxes, but they certainly don't want to see the infrastructure deficits out there as well. And I've just driven over the hill from Wellington, uh, up and heading to Paihiatua, and there's pot road, potholes galore along the road, and everybody's seeing the failings across the health system. We've got some major issues that we need to address. Hmm. Nwanthi, let's bring you in. Yeah, thank you. And thanks, Cameron. Look, I was I was particularly surprised um, when, you know, we've compared ourselves to advanced economies like Germany, South Korea, Japan, and even Singapore. What are your views on that? I mean, I don't, I don't personally believe we're anywhere near those economies at all. Um, but what's your views on us comparing ourselves to that? And, 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 and how do we actually ensure that the future of our economy, um, particularly in science and skills um, and infrastructure, like you've just talked about from a roading infrastructure perspective, um, will be met? Well, comparisons to Korea, Germany, et al. are aspirational. Not much more than that. Yeah, they're, they're what's called GDP, gross domestic product per capital. There's leaps and bounds ahead of us. Probably a better target for New Zealand will be looking across the Tasman and try to get our per yes. capita incomes up in line with Australians, which would take about a 30% increase in productivity. So you know, you're talking yes. a, a pretty big aspiration requires a pretty big effort on the other side. If you, if you look what I think is going to make the biggest difference, not just infrastructure. The thing that concerns me the most across New Zealand at the moment is education. And the education yep. system today is going to be the economy in 30 years. And I saw within the speech today that finally, you know, even in the past couple of weeks, we're starting to see some announcements in regard to the education, math, literacy, the extra 320-odd teachers. Look, for God's sake, we were talking about this 2015, 2016, 2017. Mm-hmm. It's now 2023, and it's almost like Rome's burning before we start to you know, bring, on, bring on the firefly. Mark. Yeah, Cameron, speaking of that, I mean, they've, they've put off, as you say, politically, they're not going to make any decisions or bring any taxes before the election. But that whole look at the tax system, is this something that whoever comes into power um, at the election is going to have to deal with? Well, I can tell you one thing that any new government is going to have to deal with, and I think it's going to be a pretty big fiscal gap. You know, we've well, what happens is that we're running pretty big fiscal deficits at the moment, yeah? So the, the spending run rate is outrunning the revenue run rate. And even if you look at the underlying spending run rate, yes, yeah, so you strip out COVID because you know, people say, well, we're spending less. Well, that's just because COVID's over. If you look at the underrate, underlying run rate for non-COVID spending, it's accelerating at a double-digit rate, and it's unsustainable. Now, any government when they get into power in the next term is going to make have to make some pretty brutal spending decisions, because there's two things at play. Look, one, you've got all these infrastructure demands that'll be the third that we need to address. Secondly, you've got you know, the long-term fiscal impact of an ageing population, and then you need to roll into that mix, getting that right balance between taxing versus spending. And we're going to have a big debate about tax including the tax system down the track. Yeah. So the, uh, Chris Hipkins has ruled out a capital gains tax, wealth tax. I mean, there's been enormous speculation about this, hasn't there, precisely for the parameters that you've just uh, uh, told us uh, this afternoon. Such. No, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think the parameters they're trying to sell this thing on is one offence and equity, where if I have a look at, you know, 
and I used to work at Treasury, is that I'm looking at the accounts and they need more money. Now, you can kick mm. that yeah, tie down the road for a little bit, but at some stage you're going to have to make some big, bold decisions and it's going to involve getting more revenue. As simple as that, no one thing. Getting in more revenue. And where from, I guess. And where do we, how do we do that? Know. Any ideas, Nwanthi? Yeah. You're the business voice here. Oh, you're too kind, Wallace. Um, I, I mean, I'm surprised that we just ruled out taxes, and I think that's just because, as Cameron stated, it's, it's election year. But, I mean, where are we actually going to get this money from? I, I just It just blows my mind. Okay, Cameron, let's, let's, go, let's float some ideas. Is there a politically palatable way to get more revenue? What about um, doing what France does, uh, rejig the, um, the age of superannuation? Uh, is it some sort of um, wealth tax? Is it some sort of asset tax um, not on your first home? Is it, for example, you know, when you buy art, when you buy high investment art, blue chibat in Aotearoa, um, it can often go up um, by quite a lot over the years. You pay nothing on it. Yeah, well, look, at a, the ideal solution here is just to be at a stronger, vibrant, more productive economy. So you basically grow your way out of a bit of a spending jam by having more revenue coming in the door. Right. Uh, that's the perfect answer. The problem is we don't live in a perfect world, and that's an answer which I think we're ultimately going to struggle to deliver. So then it becomes a question about, well, either make the tough, bold choices, or you cut back on spending, or you take from Peter to pay Paul in regards to shuffling the cards around different parts of spending. You shift between capital spend and operational spend. That tends to be a favourite between political parties, because operational spend is, of course, the more politically favoured one. Capital spend is a sort of a long-term investment that doesn't get you much goodies on the, out of the electorate, whereas you just borrow more money. Uh, now, nothing's ideal, but what we're going to have to face is a little bit of reality in the coming five years. Isn't there, isn't there going to be a bit of tension, Cameron? Because, you, you know, you look at the dairy sector and the issues there and you're saying we need the productive sector to, to grow our way out of the problems we're in. Um, but the whole climate change debate seems to be... <laughs> totally sort of contrary to what is going on in Deering. We're going to have to make some some big decisions and some sacrifices, aren't we? Well, we've got a current account deficit of 8.9% of gross domestic product, 34 billion. Standards and Poor's came out, the rating agency, and basically told us about a month ago, you need to put your, get your house in order, otherwise you're going to look at your credit rating. That means earning more and spending less. Now, New Zealand's got a long-term challenge here in regard to how do we meet our environmental climate change responsibilities. But I think there's too much focus put on the farmers. And there's not enough focus put on the city folks. Is New Zealand farmers, New Zealand in aggregate, going to turn the dial on global emissions? The answer is no. But we're pulling out that. Why? Because we want to be good global citizens in regard mm-hmm. to acting responsibly. So that makes climate change everybody's responsibility. And what I'm seeing out there across New Zealand at the moment is that the fingers pointed an awful lot of the farmers, and there doesn't seem to be an awful lot of individual responsibility in regard to what we do at the individual level, particularly across the cities. Okay, Cameron, kia ora. Thanks for your uh, thoughts on that. That's Cameron Bagri from uh, Bagri uh, Economics uh, on the pre-budget speech today. It's 19 past four of the panel. 
we have had uh, a really large response to this next story. Um, uh, here's Ingrid's one. Travidol gave me a bit of a panic attack, uh, I'm a bit wary of it. Sean says, I had Tramadol after a knee reconstruction, stopped it after two days. I woke up the second night having sleepwalked to the opposite end of the house in the dark. Another one here, extensive osteoarthritis, knees replaced. Um, one tramadol and one parasolol each morning, making a huge difference. No side effects, and no need to increase the dose over ten years is Nikki's view. So yeah, uh, and many, many more. Now, withdrawing from tramadol can be harder than getting off methamphetamine, says Tasha Cutton, who was addicted. Tramadol was supposed to be a non-addictive alternative to more harmful opioids like uh, oxycodone and fentanyl. But now many GPs have at least a patient who is addicted to Tramadol. With us is the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners and Medical Director, Dr. Luke Bradford. Dr. Bradford, kia ora again. So obviously tramadol is part of the suite, you know, um, including me, who does, you know, have some considerable pain every now and then. It's in the arsenal. You don't use it much. In what instance might someone be prescribed tramadol? What sort of pain? So so it's a, a moderate-level painkiller. We um, we keep it on the – there's a World Health Organization analgesics ladder, and it's step two, which is in the middle – um, and so that would be often post-accident, uh, post-trauma, or post-operative pain. Um, so especially in those acute settings, it can be really effective. Uh, and, and then those people with chronic pain and arthritic pain, when there aren't alternatives uh, that, that people can access either via surgery or um, because other medicines may be contraindicated for them. Yeah, so there's quite a level of effectiveness there, isn't there? But in terms of what some are saying that, you know, you do need to be mindful and you do need to be advised more around the addiction aspect, can you, can you guide, through, guide that through for us? Yeah, I, I think that um, Tramadol, and we've seen some of the data shows that the prescriptions are, have increased in recent years, and that is in direct relation to a fall in the prescriptions for Oxycontin, oxycodone type right. of fentanyl because of because they are so addictive and have the potential for so much more harm, um, and so um, we have seen that increase. We know that um, uh, the the addictive factor is is rated at about one in one per one hundred thousand uh, prescriptions. The FDA did a study on that for tramadol. So the addictive level isn't high. Um, and, and the abuse level traditionally has not been high. But that is not to say that it isn't a, a potentially dangerous um, and, and addictive medication. And, and absolutely, we should be ensuring that patients are informed around any medicine that they're started on really risks and benefits. Mark Sainsbury. Yeah, well, I, I've, been, I've had Tramadol. I, I refuse to use it after a while. I may be nauseous the next day. But I've also had friends who seriously abused it. You know, but there are people who ended up getting addicted to tramadol, and people would use it basically to to get wasted as well in in, in some instances. But for people who are prescribed for a reason, I had one friend in particular who became effectively became addicted to it, but was never told beforehand, and they had a sort of a bit of an addiction background. But you know, they were never told, they were never warned, and then it's too late. Luke. Yeah, that's, that's obviously not ideal. I mean, uh, tramadol, as you found, Mark, there's about 20% of people who just can't tolerate it. Mm. They take it and they get 
and they get sick or they get clammy or they don't sleep or they get terrible nightmares and they don't take it again. That's just, sorry, I'm outside of seagulls. Um, part of the, um, uh, I hope they're not on Tremadol. <laughs> no, 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 genuine seagulls. Um, the, um, but we have, we have acknowledged that the, the risk with Tremadol and, and certainly it is now moving to a, a class C2 controlled drug um, later this year because ah. we are seeing these problems. No thing. Oh, wow. Well, I'm probably in the 20% then um, just because I remember having severe stomach cramps and just feeling completely nauseated as well, like mm. Mark was saying. Mm. Um, and I just refused yeah. to. And I actually challenged my GP at the time because I said, do I really need to be on something this strong? Um, mm. and, and, you know, but it was just, it's it's almost like we do sometimes just dish it out so that we know that, you know, it's taken care of and, and the patient's not going to return or the patient's just going to be able to deal with whatever their challenges and, and not have to come back for a, another prescription of some sort and pay GP fees. But, I mean, in terms of um, the sort of application of Tribadol across the country, do we have any sort of hotspots in terms of locations that seem to uh, that seem to be dishing them out more um, at all? Do we know just from research? I, I certainly don't have that data. Uh, in terms of the prescription trends on it. Um, I know that often in those cases where where a choice will be made with a medication, it certainly should be a discussion with the patient. Often you'd, you'd look at some of the simpler and, and apparently less addictive or, or safer medicines, things like non-steroidals. Mm. They're often um, contraindicated. You can't have them because of the history of um, gastritis or ulcer disease or because your yes. kidneys don't tolerate it and bleeding risks. And, as you, and in the elderly especially, those medicines, which can be incredibly effective, are often um, much more dangerous. And so then, then there's a tendency to avoid that. And tramadol would often be the, the choice because of its relative, um, relatively less addictive um, nature than the other opioids. Oh, OK. Uh, so there's a scale there, um, less addictive than the others. No, nonetheless, Dr. Bradford, what is your advice to those who have been prescribed tramadol um, having taken them for maybe a, a while and have found themselves um, using them more or perhaps even addicted? Yeah, and I think that often it's very difficult being a patient to recognise that you have an addiction at that point. That's, mm. um, and so I think just having the conversation um, with your prescriber, with, whether that's uh, your general practitioner or, or from the hospital specialist, and ensuring that they are the right medicine for you, talking about dose use, talking about frequency, actually going through those, how you're using it, and, and then talking about alternatives. And, and there are a lot of um, non-pharmaceutical alternatives that we sometimes forget about um, in terms of physiotherapy, in terms of um, for chronic pain, especially yes. around the use of a multidisciplinary team. Um, uh, unfortunately, there isn't necessarily the, the, the resource to really get everyone access to that, which is, is probably a gap in our system. Very interesting, Dr. Bradford, uh, even on the sort of wider aspects of pain. We might come back to that uh, in another uh, panel, but thanks for your time. That's the Royal New Zealand College of GPs Medical Director, Dr. Luke Bradford. And, yeah, really big response regarding your feedback on using tramadol. And I'd like to know, actually, just on a wider note, and you can email me at the panel at rnz.co.nz. If you live with pain, if you have quite a bit of physical pain, how do you get on top of it? Mm. What's your strategy? What's your yeah. therapies? What's your, what's your style? What's your advice? Uh, 
therapeutics um, and a combination of drugs and what type of drugs. If you live with pain, and many do, email me, the panel at rnz.co.nz, because living with pain, Mark, isn't easy, well, and it can do your head in. Yeah, and that's why when OxyContin came out, it was hailed as this great miracle drug because mm. people who are in pain, and you know this well, Wallace, people who are in pain deserve, I mean, they need something. They're entitled to some relief. And so they came out with this drug and everyone is told, this is fantastic because it does all this and it was the first drug that lasted eight hours, you know, so to people didn't yeah, have to wake right. up in the middle of it. But they had doctors saying, and it's not addictive, which was the big lie. So, yeah, you're right. There needs to be something. People who suffer chronic pain are entitled to have some relief, but it's a matter of yep. finding something that isn't going to cause more problems. Uh, Wallace, I was crushed by a tractor, 13 ribs, 15 vertebrae broken, stopped tramadol after a week from hospital, started to improve and moved a couple of days after stopping the strong painkillers. Another one here, uh, hip operation, hallucinatory, erotic dreams, scary. I stopped the minute I got out. It's 28 past four. Just a word on this, please, panel. Under what circumstance is it acceptable to trade seats with another traveller? One traveller had to negotiate this issue head-on when a couple on honeymoon asked a passenger if he would move so they could sit together. He had booked a window seat on a long international flight. The newlyweds, quote-unquote, wanted to sit together and the passenger was offered an aisle seat instead by them. And he politely declined. So, would you move for these newlyweds? Um, The passenger said he was made to feel like the villain in their love story, move or not move. Nawanthi, what of you? Uh, I think it depends on who it is, Wallace. No, I'm being being cheeky. I would actually move, um, but I will actually... Um, not just opt for the the window seat if that's where I've got to move to. I'd probably ask the air hostess or something to kind of help me find a better spot if I've got the aisle seat already. Upgrade. So I'm a little yeah. bit picky that way. So. You've got to upgrade. You've got to. It's, it's something in it for yourself. Yeah. Look, Mark. What about you? Because, <laughs> yeah, look, I, because I wouldn't move. I wouldn't. Firstly, well, in this case, firstly, I don't know. I don't know if they're newlyweds. Well, I mean, that's the thing. They've got their whole lives together, haven't they? Why do they need, why do they need exactly. several hours on a plane? They're, they're going to Club Med. Yeah. They're oh, going look, to I, Club wouldn't mind, I wouldn't mind moving, but in this guy's case, as he said, he was quite a large – he's a big guy, and when he'd sat in the aisle before, he just about got his elbow, his, his elbow <laughs> dislocated because of the trolley hitting it. So he, And he'd booked there because he likes to get into his spot by the window and go to sleep. It was the longest mm. leg. So it wasn't just, oh, I'm going to be a, an absolute, you know, whatever, and, and not help <laughs> out. He had reasons for doing it. But they get the guilt trip put on them. The guy sitting next to her husband started jipping in and giving him a hard time too. Why didn't he move into where the wife was and let them sit together? <laughs> yep, you know? Yep, yep. yep oh, exactly. no, no, it's just, that's just... That's just no, not but moving. But look, if I was there and then someone wanted to I sit together, it. you know, it wouldn't bother me. But if I'd particularly booked the seat months in advance, sorry... That's right. I would have my, thought you'd move, Wallace. I'm surprised. Yeah, no, Wallace, you've, no. you've let us down, Wallace. Because my 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 take, I'd be thinking it through. I'd be, I'd, I'd say, give me five minutes, and I'll think, okay. <laughs> so you're newlyweds, and you're not even in love enough to pre-plan a wedding. Yes. Med. You know, you you you're, you're so on the speed, so spontaneous that you haven't even bothered to book a seat together. Now that relationship and that marriage is not going to last. You can hear it from me on the panel. 